I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 37, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Engel, volume 5, pages 1144 to 1157. Once he had established himself in the diocese, Archbishop Montini made a decision to dissolve and relocate Il Popolo d'Italia, a well-established newspaper published in the Diocese of Navarra. Bishop Gramigni, the ordinary of Navarra, protested, and rightly so, that the matter lay outside of Montini's jurisdiction. In early January 1963, only six months before his election to the chair of Peter, Montini was reported to have sent the Archbishop of Novara a letter of such a nature that Gramini experienced a fatal heart attack upon reading its contents. The letter was found by Gramini's auxiliary bishop, Monsignor Ugo Paletti, and kept in his possession. When Montini departed from... Milan for Rome, for the ghost of Archbishop Gramini followed him in the person of Monsignor Paletti. In 1967, the Italian media received a tip that the Pope was somehow connected to Archbishop Gramini's death. Shortly thereafter, Pope Paul VI appointed Paletti to head the Diocese of Spoleto. It was the first of a seemingly miraculous series of spontaneous papal promotions for the ambitious prelate that included the post of Vicar of Rome and a red hat awarded by Pope Paul VI on March 5, 1973. The Archbishop's Milan Mafia. Two of Montini's closest aides in Milan were Monsignor Giovanni Benelli and Monsignor Pasquale Macchi. Montini had recruited Benelli at the age of 26, only a few years after his ordination, to serve as his secretary at the Secretary of State. When Montini went to Milan, Benelli followed. After Montini's election to the papacy, Benelli followed him back to Rome. In 1966, the 45-year-old cleric served for a year as papal nuncio to Senegal and then returned to Rome as Paul VI's representative to the Roman Curia. One year before his death, Pope Paul VI made his faithful servant a cardinal and installed him as Archbishop of Florence. One of Benelli's most famous protégés was American priest, father, later Cardinal Justin Regali. Benelli's rival for Montini's intention and affection was late Archbishop's private secretary, Monsignor Pasquale Macchi, dubbed Montini's mother Pascalina. A native of Varese, about 35 mile, 34 miles north of Milan, Maki was a seminary teacher, and he knew his way around the city of Milan and his underworld. Maki had an affinity for French philosophy and modern art, and he brought many of his artistic friends to meet Archbishop Montini. After Montini's election to the papacy, Maki followed his master to Rome, where he became the Pope's advisor on all things aesthetic and the keeper of dark secrets. Maki, who Peter Hebelplate claimed was well-connected in the world of high finance, was on intimate terms with four of Pope Paul's top financial advisors, Michel Sendona, Monsignor Paul Marcinkus, Roberto Calvi, and Bishop Donato de Bonis, Crooks All. 
Although dissimilar in personality and temperament, Marchi and Benelli did have, did have at least one thing in common, Freemasonry. In 1976, the names, along with code names and date of initiation of Monsignor later Archbishop Pasquale Marchi and Monsignor later Cardinal and Secretary of State Giovanni Benelli, appeared on a list of highly placed Vatican officials belonging to secret societies. The list was published in the journal Il Borghese. However, the charges that both men, intimates of the Holy Father, were Freemasons appeared to have no effect on their future advancement under the pontificates of Pope Paul VI and Pope John Paul II. Archbishop Montini meets the shark. Michel Sindona, a.k.a. the shark, was an underworld financial fixture in Milan long before Montini became archbishop. Born in Messina at the eastern end of Sicily in 1917, the Jesuit-educated Sindona was studying the law. Was studying law when the British and American troops invaded Italy during World War II. The enterprising Sindona decided to take advantage of the lucrative black market and went into the lemon and wheat businesses. Business since the Italian, since the Sicilian mafia controlled the produce trade. Sindona cut a deal with mafioso head Vito Genovese, whereby he could turn over a certain percentage of his earnings for protection from the mob for his business and his person. In 1948, Sindona left the poorer, war-ravaged southern boot of Italy and migrated north to the richer, industrialized city of Milan, where he became a financial advisor to a number of influential and wealthy Milanese. His mafia credentials traveled north with him. In 1954, when Sindona learned that Pius XII had appointed Monsignor Montini to the See of Milan, he secured a letter of introduction to the new archbishop from the Archbishop of Messina, his home diocese. Sindona soon had a new client in Montini and the Milanese church. Archbishop Montini was so grateful to Sindona that he took the Sicilian to Rome and introduced him to Pope Pius XII and Prince Massimo Spada, a senior official at the Institute, Instituto per la Opere de Religione, the Institute for Religious Works. The IOR, which is popularly known as the Vatican Bank, functions as a depository for the Church's patrimony earmarked for charitable works. Sindona became a man of competence and was given virtually full control over the IRR's foreign investment program. The gross assets of the IOR at that at the time were over one billion, but money was secondary to the IOR's tax-free status and its potential as a laundry for washing dirty money, specifically mafiosi earnings from heroin trade, prostitution, and illegal political contributions from underground sources, including Freemasons. In 1960, Sindona, operating under the old adage, the best way to steal from a bank is to own one, purchased his own bank, the Barca Privata, and within a very short time was receiving deposits from the IOR. He used those funds, these funds to pyramid his own financial investments and started to launder illegal funds through the Vatican Bank. After the election of Pope Paul VI, 
Sindona followed Montini to Rome and became a major, major player at the IOR. His operations and financial portfolio grew exponentially. In 1964, Sindona formed an international currency brokerage firm called MoneyRex with 850 client banks and annual financial dealings of $200 billion. Many members of the Palazzo, the rich and famous of Rome, used the firm to shield their fortunes from taxation through illegal offshore accounts. Sindona kept a secret ledger of his clients' transactions with money racks as insurance for a rainy day. The Vatican and Pope Paul VI, along with the name and numbers of the secret accounts of high-ranking members of the Christian Democratic Party, as well as the Socialist and Social Democratic Parties, were all in Sindona's little black book. By the late 1960s, the Grupo Sindona included six, later nine, banks in Italy and abroad, and more than 500 giant corporations and conglomerates. One of the banks, the Franklin National Bank of New York, the 18th largest bank in the United States, with assets of more than $5 billion, was purchased in part with money Sindona has skimmed off from his Italian banks. He also skimmed off funds from his secret masters, that is, the Sicilian Mafia, and after 1971, from the propaganda due, P2, a mafia-inspired Masonic Lodge, catering to Italy's elite, headed by Grandmaster Licio Gelli. And in addition, Sindona was handling financial transactions for the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, which during the post-war period was pouring large sums of money into Italy, some of which made its way to the Vatican Bank. Meanwhile, Sindona's friend, Paul, Paul VI, was the recipient of bad tidings from the state. The Italian government was threatening to remove the fiscal tax exemption on the church and church properties and investments that the Holy See had enjoyed since the days of Mussolini's fascist regime. Under the revised tax code, the Vatican state would be taxed like any other corporate entity. Sindona proposed a scheme to hide Vatican money and offshore investments, and the Pope agreed. One of Sindona's most prominent one of Sindona's prominent protégés was a native Milanese by the name of Roberto Calvi. Calvi was the central manager of the Banco Ambrosiano, Italy's most prominent Catholic bank as distinguished from the lay or secular banking institutions operated by the Jews and Freemasons. Calvi was a man after Sindona's own heart, which spelled disaster ahead not only for the Banco Ambrosiano, but also for its major depositor, the Holy See. Calvi had his own connection to the IOR through Monsignor Macchi, Montini's personal secretary. He was also on excellent terms with an American priest at the Secretary of State, Monsignor Paul Marcinkus, Pope Paul VI and the Gorilla. Paul Casimir Marcinkus came from humble but sturdy Lithuanian immigrant stock. He was born on January 15, 1922 in Cicero, Illinois, made infamous in the 1920s by mobster Al Capone. Soon after his graduation from St. Mary of the Lake Seminary in Mundelein and ordination as a priest of the Chicago Archdiocese, Father Marcinkus attracted the patronage of Samuel Cardinal Stritch. The young priest served Cardinal Stritch until 1952 when he was appointed to an administrative post at the Vatican Secretariat. 
1958, Cardinal Stretch joined Marcinkus in Rome as pro-prefect of propagation of the faith, but died after only three months in office. After this, little was heard of Monsignor Marcinkus in the Roman Curia other than he enjoyed the continual favor of Stretch's successors, Cardinal Albert Mayer and Cardinal Patrick Cody. It was not long after the election of Pope Paul VI in June 1963 that Marcinkus's career took off. Marcinkus, six, foot, six feet four, burly physique, earned him the name the Gorilla from his Italian friends at the Secretariat. Pope Paul VI first used him as a bodyguard and security agent on his trips abroad. In 1968, Paul VI appointed Marcinkus secretary of the IOR. He ordained him a bishop on January 6, 1969. In 1971, Marcinkus became the president of the IOR. By this time, he had forged a strong bond with Sindona and through Sindona Cowley and through them to Jelly. In other words, the Vatican Bank now shared a joint bank account with two of the church's traditional enemies, the Sicilian Mafia and international Freemasonry. The successive international scandals that followed in the wake of this unholy union, the collapse of the Franklin National Bank and the Banco Ambrosiano, the exposure of propaganda due P2, the Lodge, and the release of its membership list, the murders of Sendona and Cowley are a grim reminder of a pontificate fraught with corruption. The Montinian pontificate, there was no question in the minds of the cardinals of the church gathered in Rome on June 19, 1963, for the purpose of electing a new pope, that upon his death, Pope John XXIII wanted Archbishop Montini to succeed him. And so it happened. It is significant, however, that even after Montini had secured the votes necessary for his election, between 22 to 25 cardinals, mainly Italians and members of the Curia, Men who knew him best refused to cast their vote, refused to cast their final, final vote for him. Following his installation on June 30, 1963, Pope Paul VI pledged to complete the work of the Second Vatican Council, begun by Pope John XXIII, under his Montini's instruction and guidance, and so he did. The 15-year pontificate of Paul VI was marked by a series of unprecedented crises and betrayals, as has rarely been seen in the Roman Catholic Church at any point in its 2,000-year-old history. The betrayals associated with the Second Vatican Council were put into motion by Pope John XXIII, who used his authority to facilitate the restructuring of the ten conciliar commissions. Pope John jettisoned all the original schemas drawn up by the Council's preparatory commission over a three-year period, save one, the schema on the, on the sacred liturgy. Under Paul VI, the original schemas were replaced by new texts in keeping with the planned agenda that had been worked out by Archbishop Montini and the Rhine Group before the opening of the Council. The post-conciliar church of Pope Paul VI will be remembered for the following. The rape of the liturgy the financial ravaging and pillaging by Montini's friends Sindona, Calvi, and Marcinkus pale into insignificance when compared to the rape of the sacred liturgy orchestrated by Pope Paul VI and carried out before the whole world. Of all the disasters to befall the Church in the post-conciliar era, 
None was more deadly than the destruction of the Roman Rite Mass that comes down to us from the Apostles. The holy sacrifice of the Mass is the foundation of Catholic worship. It is in the Mass that the central act of transubstantiation, that is, the changing of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, takes place. The Mass is the font of grace. It is in the Mass that the priest realizes his true identity as high priest and intermediary between God and man. It was an act of inexplicable audacity for Pope Paul VI to replace the Mass of the Roman Rite with a bastardized and Protestantized service called the Novus Ordo Missi, New Order of the Mass, and to impose it on priests and faithful alike. The liturgical reforms of Pope Paul VI included not only the wholesale destruction of the traditional Mass, but the tampering with every aspect of liturgical life, including the liturgy of the hours, psalter, biblical readings, hymns, chants, intercessions, the litany of the saints, the sacraments, baptism, confirmation, holy communion, penance, extreme unction, marriage and holy orders, blessings and pontip pontifical rites, the church calendar, and sacred music. By a miracle of grace, only the devotional of the rosary was spared from the mutilation. The attack on Thomistic philosophy. Under Paul VI, Thomistic scholasticism and the natural law tradition were discarded in favor of a scripture-based ethic and other new scientific, theological, and ecclesiastical modes of thinking, such as phenomenology and existentialism, the undermining of the priesthood and religious life, in sharp contrast to the image of the preconciliar priest as being virile, masculine, and celibate, the perception of new priest of new church is decidedly effeminate and often unchaste. As noted by Reverend Father James McLucas in his essay, The Emasculation of the Priesthood, the expansive absorption of many sacred functions by the laity that were formerly reserved to the ordained is inherently hostile to a healthy masculinity. The perception of the Vatican II priest is one of softness and sentimentalism. New priest is charming and accommodating. He is ecumenical. He neither condemns error or those teaching error. He is everything and anything but manly. He is, in the words of Dr. Conrad Bars, incapable of doing battle against evil for the sake of the good, ready to be hurt, but also, if need be, ready to hurt. McLucas, Father McLucas states that Pope Paul VI acted to weaken a mandatory celibate priesthood by opening the permanent diaconate to non-celibates, that is, to married men, even though there has never been a holy order that was non-celibate since the mandating of celibacy in the Western Church. The practice of admitting married Protestant minister converts to the priesthood has also contributed to breaking down resistance in mandatory to mandatory celibacy, says McLucas. The Montenian Church eliminated minor orders, thus opening the door for lay ministers to take over the roles of lector and acolyte that were once reserved for men entering the ordained priesthood, says McLucas. This novel practice paved the way for the lay presider communion rite, he states. The assumption of sacred functions by the laity reserved to the ordained for at least 1,500 years, says McLucas, is poisoning the priesthood. 
The contention proceeds from a simple premise. If the priesthood is reserved to men, as has been taught by the church, then what does harm to the masculine nature of the ordained weakens the priesthood itself, McLucas argues. Pope Paul VI also weakened the priesthood in other ways. He presided over the wholesale laicization reduction to the lay state of thousands of validly ordained priests, granting them dispensation pro gratia. According to Amario, the overall effect of these habitual dispensations was to reduce the onus of defection and to change the moral and judicial character of the breaking of vows and the abandonment of vocations. The de-emphasis on, of the sacerdotal and sublime dignity of the priesthood implicit in the Noah's ordro service and the laxity of discipline and morals that characterized seminary life and the priesthood in the post-conciliar period contributed to the overall decline of the priesthood and religious life. The abolition of the oath against modernism. The action speaks for itself. The gutting of the Roman Curia. The destruction of the Roman Curia despised by Montini from his earliest years as the Secretary of State was another accomplishment of the Montinian pontificate. Pope Paul VI mandated the retirement of bishops at the age of 75 and removed their right to vote at a conclave after the age of 80. In doing so, Montini cleared the Holy Office, renamed the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith of Deadwood, that is, prelates who were highly esteemed as men of faith, honor, character, experience, and wisdom. He replaced them with men of less merit, but more to his own liking and inclinations. As Amario notes in the Montinian Church, there was a decline in the formal and technical working of the Curia. The use of Latin, which permitted the members of the Curia to express a statements with nobility, lucidity, and precision in curial style, fell into greater disuse. Even Pope Paul himself was haunted by his lack of scholarship and precision in his speeches and written works, says Amario. With the decline of the Curia came the rise in power of national Episcopal conferences, where the collective Borg decides who shall and who shall not be awarded a bishopric, depending on the candidate's willingness to cooperate with the leaders of the church bureaucracy. The unprecedented fraternization of the church with heretics, schismatic, and other traditional enemies of the church, including communist Freemasons, Zionists, and functionaries of the so-called New World Order. The spirit of Vatican II hailed by all enemies of the church as a sure sign of divine approbation was the same spirit that inspired the French Revolution and its Masonic motto, Egalité, Liberté, and Fraternité. The proliferation of ecumenical misadventures, especially ominous to the welfare of the church and the faithful, was the increased support and contact Pope Paul VI made with the Soviet-dominated World Council of Churches, notorious for its funding of terrorists and wars of liberation in Latin America and Africa. To borrow a phrase from the late Archbishop Lefebvre, Pope Paul VI interfaith activities were an exercise in public blasphemy. The betrayal of Joseph Ivan, Ivan, Ivanovich 
Colonel Slippy of the Ukraine and Joseph Colonel Menzenti, primate of Hungary, and countless millions of victims of international communism throughout the world, most especially in Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and South Vietnam, Angola, Mozambique, and Uganda. The Humani Vici debacle or a lesson on how to undermine church doctrine and morals without changing church doctrine and morals. As has already been noted, a short time before his death, Pope John XXIII, at the prompting of Archbishop Montini, established a special Vatican commission to study the issue of the regulation of birth and demographic considerations with special emphasis on the re-examination of the Church's traditional ban on contraception in light of a new scientific means of hormonal-induced sterility. The formation of a commission responsible only to the Pope effectively bypassed the guardians of the faith at the Roman Curia. Once in office, Paul VI established a new and expanded three-tiered commission, to study and make recommendations to him on the question of the pill and related issues. A period of six years elapsed between the founding of the original commission in 1963 and the issuance of Humanae Vitae in 1968. This was more than sufficient time to create a state of doubt as to whether or not the church would continue to uphold the ban against contraception. The old adage, lex dubia non obligat, a doubtful law does not bind, gained currency among many Catholics. By the time Humana Vitae was issued, it was, for many Catholics, a dead letter. The whole exercise had been a lesson in how to undermine dogma and morals without changing dogma and morals. <clears throat> the crisis was further complicated by Paul VI's unwillingness to enforce the ban on contraception in the face of organized and public opposition of Catholic priests and religious and professors in Catholic universities and colleges, the Humanae Vitae. The total effect of the long-delayed affirmation of the ban on contraception, combined with the failure to discipline them, those in authority in the church were, who were in a state of rebellion against the teaching and the teacher, was to cast a long shadow over the church's ability to speak infallibly on matter of faith and morals. All of the above-mentioned actions associated with the reign of Pope Paul VI had catastrophic repercussions for the Church. Also, each in its own way benefited the rapidly expanding homosexual collective, both within and without the Church, during the post-conciliar era, and each played a role in the paradigm shift in the Church's position on the vice of homosexuality that flowed out of the Second Vatican Council. Yet there still remains one further factor that needs to be considered when examining the homosexual collective's extraordinary success in colonizing the Catholic Church in the United States and abroad. And that is the matter of Pope Paul VI's own uh, alleged own habituation to the vice of homosexuality. The charges of homosexuality against Pope Paul VI we begin with the statements that emanate from the homosexual collective itself. Pope Paul VI is identified as a homosexual in numerous homosexual publications, and his name appears on virtually all lists of prominent homosexuals found on various homosexual collective websites. Are these references infallible? 
Definitely not, especially when dealing with historical figures. The tendency for the homosexual collective is to label, label a person as gay, even though little is known about his personal life. The assumption is that if there is no evidence that the individual is heterosexual, he is ipso facto a homosexual. No room is left for other possibilities. For example, the individual in question may simply have been asexual or had a low sex drive. It may be that he submitted his normal sexual urges. Maybe that he sublimated his normal sexual urges for the sake of his art, or his profession, or in the case of a celibate priest, for the love of God. In other cases, the collective may be correct in his historical assessment that the individual was habituated to a particular sexual vice, but that vice may not have been homosexuality. Here the name of Hans Christian Andersen, the writer of fairy tales, comes to mind. His name appears on a number of contemporary lists of prominent gays of the past. The famed sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld publicly identified Anderson as a homosexual, or at least a latent homosexual. More recent biographical data, however, suggests that Anderson possessed a highly narcissistic temperament and that he was habitually and incurably addicted to the practice of solitary masturbation. As Elias Bredstorff of Cambridge University notes in his biography of the writer, there is sufficient evidence to demonstrate that Anderson was by nature heterosexual, but with feelings of inferiority that made any relationship with a mature woman impossible for him. Autoeroticism permitted him to love the one person whom Hans Christian Anderson loved best from his youth, himself. In the case of Pope Paul VI, these errors do not appear to factor in the equation. It is significant that the homosexual collective's identification of Pope Paul VI as a homosexual took place long before the subject of homosexuality became part of the American consciousness. In other words, the rumor that Montini was sexually attracted to young priests was part to young men was part of the gospel line of the collective long before charges of homosexuality were publicly brought against the Pope. In the United States, the North American Man-Boy Love Association, NAMBLA, at its organizational meeting held on December 2, 1978, at Boston's Unitarian Community Church, claimed, the church condemns sexual deviance, but it is hypocritical, i.e. tolerating and even rewarding personal sexual hypocrisy at the highest levels, as long as outward fealty is displayed to central control. Cardinal Spellman and Paul VI are recent examples. The testimony of Robin Bryant, as revealed in the concluding segment on the Cambridge Spies, Robin Bryant, a.k.a. Robert Harbinson, the Irish writer and self-confessed homosexual, in his 1992 autobiography, The Dust Never Settles, claims that his friend Hugh Montgomery told him that he, Montgomery, and the young Montini had been lovers. To reiterate, Hugh Montgomery was the brother of the well-known artist Peter Montgomery, the longtime sex partner of Cambridge spy Anthony Blunt. Brands says that Hugh Montgomery was also a one-time lover of the powerful and well-known homosexual diplomat Sir Gilbert Leithwaite. During the, ni- mid- during the mid-1930s, Hugh Montgomery 
was assigned a diplomatic post at the Vatican as the charge d'affaires under Sir Alec Randall, the British representative to the Holy See. It was here that Hugh met an equally up-and-coming Italian junior diplomat, Monsignor Battista Mantini, who alleged, allegedly shared Hugh's sexual proclivities, and the two men allegedly engaged in an affair. According to Bryan's, Hugh Montgomery and his friend Battista Mantini fraternized with some pretty eccentric characters during those days, including Viscount Ivan Tritigar, an aristocratic convert to Catholicism, who served as a privy chamberlain to Pope Benedict XV. The Viscount enjoyed titillating his friends with tales of his sexual exploits and the occult, including his first-hand experiences with the Black Mass using human blood, urine, and semen. After the death of Pope Benedict XV and the election of a new pope, Pius XI, Tritigar automatically lost his honorary position of Privy Chamberlain. He abandoned his dreams of being a priest and returned to his ancestral home in Wales and married. According to a close friend, Tritigar kept a picture of the young Montini cheek by jowl with that of an able-bodied sailor on his bedside table along with other photographs of royalty. In an interview with British writer Stephen Doral, co-author of Honey Trap, The Secret Worlds of Stephen Ward, Bryan's repeated the story of Hugh Montini's Hugh Montgomery's affair with Montini. Doral said he found Bryan's to be pretty much on the money when it came to his recollections of his early days as a member of the of the London's elite homosexual clique. Hugh Montgomery eventually converted to Catholicism, entered Beta College, and was ordained a Catholic priest. Little more is known about the controversial churchman. If it is true that Montini engaged in a homosexual affair as a junior diplomat at the Vatican, it is almost certain that at least some members of the Roman Curia would have heard the rumors. However, since the young Baptista Batista was well documented by his politically was well protected by his politically powerful family and by other influential prelates, including Eugenio Pacelli, the future Pius XII. There is little that could have been done to remove Montini from his diplomatic post. The claims of Roger Peyrefet. Roger Peyrefet, the French novelist, a French Roger Peyrefet. French novelist and a member of the French diplomatic corps in Athens, was born in 1907. He is an avowed homosexual and known for his outspoken views in defense of gay rights. In 1976, Paverford gave an interview to D.W. Gunn and J. Murat, representing the Gay Sunshine Press on the subject of Pope Paul VI's alleged homosexuality. Paverford said that in January 1976, the Pope gave a public speech in which he condemned homosexuality, masturbation, and premarital sex. Paraphrit said he was incensed by the Pope's hypocrisy since it was known in certain circles that while Montini was Archbishop of Milan, he had a homosexual affair with a young movie actor whose name Paraphrit knew. The French writer said that he did not get his, this information from communist or doorman, but from members of the Italian nobility with whom he was well acquainted. His Milanese sources indicated 
that it was a political secret in certain circles that Montini went to a discreet house to meet boys and that he had a particular favorite whose name, first name was Paul. Following Paul VI's condemnation of homosexuality, a French reporter from Louis came to interview Paverfit. That is, when Paverfit exposed Montini's homosexual background in Milan. The Louis interview was picked up and reproduced by the Italian weekly news magazine Tempo in Rome and on April 26, 1976. Paverfit said that it was as if a time bomb had gone off. The Vicar of Rome and the Italian Episcopal Conference called for a universal day of consolation for calumny against the Holy Father on Palm Sunday. The Pope issued a statement from his balcony at the Vatican. Della Cosi Corribile Corribile Del Corribile a calumniose. Perfet said that his accusations against the Pope went everywhere in the in the world. In Old Vatican, a slightly wicked view of the Holy See, former New York Times Rome Bureau correspondent Paul Hoffman repeats the pavement charges against Montini. He names the well-known Italian actor Paolo Carlini, whom, whom Montini was alleged to have met in Milan when he was archbishop and who later became a frequent visitor to Pope Paul VI's private quarters at the Vatican. More charges by the Abbe Donantes. In the summer of 1993, the Abbe George Donantes, founder of the League of the Catholic Counter-Reformation in France in 1969, expounded on the charges of homosexuality against Pope Paul VI and the June-July issue of the Catholic Counter-Reformation in the 20th century. The Abbe said that his comments were in response to the announcement of Pope John Paul II on May 13, 1993, the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima, that the canonization process for Pope Paul VI was going forward following the preliminary diocesan proceedings carried out in Milan in 1992. I have received the news of the opening of the canonization process of my predecessor, Paul VI. For me, he was a father in a personal sense. That is why I cannot express my great joy and gratitude, declared Pope John Paul II. The charge of homosexuality against Pope Paul VI and counter-reformation begins with the Abbe recalling the charges of Paul Hoffman's concerning La Mafia Milanese, that is, the, that is Archbishop Montini's notorious connection to the Mafia and Freemasonry syndicate in Milan. Abbe Donantes then makes a reference to a quote taken from, a, from an unnamed paperback in his possession that refers to a non-Italian cardinal a big man affable and keen-eyed, whom Pope Paul VI had appointed to a key Vatican post and who had a reputation for pederasty with the Ragazzi, the boys in the quarter behind the Vatican. He says that he was aware that after the election of Montini to the chair of Peter, there was an inordinate rise in the numbers of homosexual seminarians and priests in the United States and the Netherlands. Yet Rome did nothing, he says. Finally, the Abbe recalls an incident that occurred on the eve of the 1963 conclave that elected Montini Pope. He said, Reverend Father de Saint Abbot 
of St. Paul outside the walls, Basilica, informed him during the evening that the conclave opened that the morality section of the Milan police had a file on Montini. Therefore, the new pope could not and would not be Montini, but it was Montini. The Abbe Donatis then addresses Pope John Paul II. So after the scandal of the election of an avowed homosexual to the throne of St. Peter, having poisoned the church, you, most holy father, would have, have him relive and gain strength by having the same, the same wretch who had Paul VI raised to the altars and his bones offered as relics to the faithful for their pious kisses and his tormented face presented to their fervent gaze in Bernini's Gloria. Ah, no, that is impossible. It will not be. The revelations of Franco Bellagrande, Attila Cinque Guimara's in his latest work, Vatican II Homosexuality and Pedophilia, raises the issue of Paul VI homosexuality. Guimara's quotes, Franco Bellagrande, a former member of the Vatican Noble Guard, part of the papal military corps who witnessed the unfortunate changes that occurred at the Vatican after Pope Paul VI took office. Bellagrande repeats the charges that while Archbishop of Milan, Montini, dressed in civilian clothes, was picked up by the local police at one, one of the Archbishop's nocturnal visits to the male brothels of the city. The former Vatican guard describes the homosexual colonization process that he says began under Pope John XXIII, but which accelerated under Montini's rule, a process with which the reader should by now be thoroughly familiar. Pellegrandi says that old employees were turned out of their jobs as the Vatican to make room for Montini's favored brethren afflicted with the same vice. They in turn brought along their favorite catamites, effeminate young men wearing elegant uniforms and makeup on their faces to dissimulate their beards, says Bellagrande. Bellagrande says that he was told by an official of the Vatican Security Service that Montini's actor friend was permitted free access to the pontifical apartments and was seen taking the papal elevator at night. The issue of blackmail. One of the statements made by Bellagrande that attracted my attention was that Montini no sooner took office than he was subjected to blackmail by Italian Freemasons. In exchange for their silence regarding Archbishop Montini's furtive sojourns to Switzerland and to rendezvous with his actor lover, who appears to have been quite open about his relationship with the prelate, the Masons demanded that the Pope eliminate the Church's traditional ban on cremation after death, the Pope complied. This is not the first time that Montini's sexual perversions made him a likely target of the black, of blackmail, blackmailers. In my correspondence, my correspondence with a British writer known for his familiarity with the operations of M16, England's Foreign Intelligence Service, this writer inquired as to whether or not he believed that Montini's homosexuality laid him open to blackmail by British or Soviet intelligence agents during the Second World War. 
He said that he believed that the British M-16 and the Americans OSS knew about Montini's homosexuality and used it against him to gain his cooperation in running the Vatican-allied rat lines after the war. He said he had no corresponding knowledge concerning the Soviets. Information on the possible blackmail of Montini by the Soviet KGB and GRU after the war came from another source. An elderly gentleman from Paris who worked as an official interpreter for high-level clerics at the Vatican in the early 1950s told this writer that the Soviets blackmailed Montini into revealing the names of priests whom the Vatican had clandestinely sent behind the Iron Curtain to minister to Catholics in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. The Soviet secret police were on hand as soon as the priests crossed over the Russian border and the priest infiltrators were either shot or sent to the Gulag. The extent to which Pope Paul VI was subject to blackmail by the enemies of the Church will probably never be known. The file of Cardinal Pietro Palazzini, born on May 19, 1912 in Pio Pico, Italy, the great scholar and theologian Pietro Cardinal Palazzini served as prefect of the Congregation for the Causes of Saints from 1980 to 1988. He died on October 11, 2000. In May 1992, the beatification cause of Paul VI was introduced by the vicar of the Pope for Rome. Cardinal Camillo, Camillo, Cardinal Camillo Ruini all and all seemed to be proceeding well until 1997. According to Father Luigi Villa, editor of Chiesa Viva, Pietro Cardinal Palazzini had sent a letter to the postulator for the cause of beatification of Paul VI that contained three names of the last homosexual lovers of Paul VI. Villa stated that Cardinal Palazzini was in possession of the two of two binders of documents that demonstrated unequivocally the pure, un, the impure and unnatural vice of Paul VI. Curtain, the curtain comes down. There can be no question that Paul, Pope Paul VI's homosexuality was instrumental in the paradigm shift that saw the rise of the homosexual collective in the Catholic Church in the United States, at the Vatican, and around the world in the mid-20th century. Pope Paul VI played a decisive role in the selection and advancement of many homosexual members of the American hierarchy, including Joseph Cardinal Bernadine, <clears throat> Terence Cardinal Cook, John Cardinal Wright, and Archbishop Rembert Wheatland, and Bishops George H. Guilfoyle, Guilfoyle, Francis Mugavero, Joseph Hart, Joseph Ferrario, James Roush, and their heirs. The knowledge that a homosexual sat in the chair of Peter, knowledge that spread like wildfire on the gay gossip circuit, would certainly have served as an inducement for homosexual men to aspire to the priesthood and even prompt them to contemplate the unthinkable, a religious order or community composed exclusively of sodomites. Most importantly, the long-guarded quasi-secret of Paul VI's homosexual life has for decades contributed to the silence and cover-up by the American hierarchy on the issue of homosexuality in general, 
and the criminal activities of pederast priests in particular, but it is a secret no longer. The final piece of the puzzle has been put in place. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. And this is all of my reading from <coughs> The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, Volume 4 for today. And so I'll end my podcast here. There's no time again for the catechism. So, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.